Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Amanda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution and increasingly in the service of finding a way through to a flourishing future that we would be happy to leave to future generations. My guest this week is a friend of the podcast. Jeremy Lent spoke to us first in podcast 38, way back in the summer of last year, about his book, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. And then his second book came out, and I read it, actually both of us read it, and apart from the fact that it inspired us to go and start training in Qigong, it was one of the books that seemed to me essential reading if you're part of the move towards the future that is emerging. Jeremy has laid out the ground of where we are, where we need to be, and how to get there in terms of our own personal development. This is book two of three, and the third book is developing exactly how an eco-civilization would look and feel. But I wanted to talk about the Web of Meaning before the next book comes out. And so this is it. And people of the podcast, once again, please welcome Jeremy Lent. So Jeremy Lent, thank you so much for getting up at whatever time in the morning it is in California and coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. You're in Berkeley. That didn't get burned in the fires in the summer, did it? No, actually, it's um, right on the coast, and we tend to get this wonderful, um, life-giving uh, breeze that comes from the ocean to, to sort of keep us uh, keep us breathing. Mm. But yeah, the last couple of uh, summers have been devastating for California and the whole western coast of the of North America. It brings to home so many people to so many people. Like this climate breakdown is not a matter of what's going to happen in the future, but it's happening right now. Yes, and and in a second, I want to find out how you got to be in the place that you are. But just while we're here, I've been reading that amongst Democrats in the states, climate change is rising towards the top of their kind of urgency list, but amongst Republicans, it's falling. Mm. Do you think that's true? And if so. At some point later on, I'd really like to look at how can we change that. Yes. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, it is true. And um, that is one of the great imponderables uh, for, for our future of humanity right now is how we can change that. Because unfortunately, there's a big section of the Republican Party here in the United States that just keeps doubling down on lie after lie, whether it's to do with COVID, whether their, their myth of the stolen election from last November or climate breakdown, almost it's almost like the the f- more things, the more clear things are in one, the actual reality, the more they double down on these myths. It's a little bit like you see in extreme cults, mm. only in this case, the cult happens to pervade like 30% of the population of the United States. So it's rather scary. And might take back the White House. Let's not go there just now. We'll come back to that in the end of how do we fix things. But in the meantime, for the people who haven't listened back to our previous podcast, can you give us a brief bio of how you got to be the person who, frankly, who reads so many books? I read The Web of Meaning and I think, my gosh, I thought I read a lot, but my goodness, you've read so much and you remember it and you reference it. So how did you get to be 
that guy. Yeah, well, actually, for the first half of my adult life, I wasn't reading books at all. <clears throat> I had taken a, a turn in in my own career path where I got an MBA and I went into business mm -hmm. and I started a company that uh, I then took public. And I basically had made my whole life around uh, just being successful in a business career and all this stuff. And it was only when things in my life kind of collapsed around me a little bit. Well, a lot, actually. My first wife who passed away some years back um, got to be sick. I left the company that I had taken public. The company crashed. I lost, even though I, um, I looked after my wife for a number of years, but she suffered some cognitive decline. So I kind of lost the relationship um, even early on. And I asked myself, where am I going to go in my life that could be truly meaningful? It seemed like everything I'd built had collapsed around me. And so I spent a lot of years actually trying to make sure that whatever I did in my life was truly going to be meaningful and was not just what somebody else told me was right, but my own sense of what I could really believe in. But that took a lot of sort of like almost like fitting a jigsaw puzzle together. And I'd be, I'd, I'd try to think, figure out, well, where do our core ideas come from? And a little bit like peeling the onion, I'd go back layer upon layer to early history and different cultures and cognitive science to understand what we are as human beings. And in all those things, um, I, as I was doing that, it, I realized it would be really great if there was some, uh, somebody else had actually written this kind of map for me so I could figure out how to make sense of this. And that was actually what led me to write this first book, The Patterning Instinct, mm. which is a cultural history of humanity's search for meaning. But this whole direction led me to finally get a sense of realizing that our culture is basically a culture that destroys the core sense of meaning. But it was possible to actually look at the world in a different way uh, like a, a different worldview that could feel truly meaningful, where our lives actually did um, feel that they weren't, we didn't have to impose meaning, but they just arose from our recognition of where we are in life. And that's what this uh, new book, The Web of Meaning, um, is about. And the subtitle of it is Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. Because part of my research showed me that even though we traditionally think that science somehow is separate from spiritual understanding and all this stuff, the opposite is true. What, what science really does lead us to is a deep understanding of our interconnectedness, the same insights that great wisdom traditions have also pointed to. Yes. And it felt to me watching COP, because we're recording this on the Monday after COP, that there were so many more Indigenous peoples there. At least I was aware of more Indigenous peoples. They were beginning to be at least getting some traction in mainstream media and a lot in the kind of sub-mainstream media that I follow. And that some of the world leaders there were sounding as if they were taking this on board. And yet, from the reading that I've done so far, it feels as if we've been very badly failed by the people who came together who could have made a difference. And I'm wondering, before we go into more of the web of meaning, just while it's fresh, while it's kind of alive for us both, is it worth exploring what's your take on COP, on what it has achieved, what it might have achieved, and then how we might still 
kind of twist things to make things work? Yeah, I I really do see COP26 as being in some ways a historic milestone of the worst kind. We, we can really understand it in some ways as the, the moment when the nation states of the world have thrown in the towel, have essentially um, just officially failed humanity and um, have shown their utter inability uh, to shift the direction of where we need to go as we hit this increasingly uh, uh, rapidly approaching impending existential crisis. Um, it's as though, you know, we're on this vehicle, not just headed for a precipice, but uh, with a foot down on the accelerator, accelerating towards the precipice at a faster and faster rate. And if COP achieved anything, the most you can say is that, well, the rate at which we're accelerating on the, on the gas pedal towards the precipice is now a little bit less. We're, we're still accelerating, but we're sort of beginning to realize that maybe we shouldn't be accelerating as fast as we are, as we head towards the precipice. Now, some people, of course, want to try to find something positive to say about COP26. So people like Christiana Figueres or others, you know, one, they, they recognize how bad things are, but they're really invested in what they see as optimism and want to say, well, it could be worse. You know, people are beginning to be a little bit aware that we do need to, you know, we're actually, for the first time, we actually mentioned the word fossil fuels in the in the document. That So that's an improvement. Those are kind of the kind of improvements that are a little bit like, oh, the, the rate of acceleration itself is not quite as bad as it was before. No, not even close. We need to recognize we need drastic change. We need it now. We needed it actually yesterday and uh, years ago. And every single week, month that this goes on, the changes that will be required are even more drastic. Mm. And until there is a greater recognition of that, I think uh, COP26 has been actually a great success for certain parties. It's been a great success for the fossil fuel industry, mm. great success mm. for corporate lobbyists, a great success basically for investors in the stock market because none of the business as usual has just been given the, the sort of green light to keep going in this rate of destruction that's on right now, but a complete disaster for life on earth and for the future of human civilization. Oh, joy. I was hoping there might be a glimmer of optimism in there, Jeremy, but but no, yeah, I hear you. I did hear, in fact, on Christiana Figueres' podcast, the global head of HSBC saying that they were now going to check the transition documents of every business that they fund to see how they were transitioning to zero. He didn't say what they were going to do if they found something that wasn't good, but I thought, you know, he wouldn't have been saying that five years ago, but I hear you. It's completely, it's too little, way, way, way too late. And so, as you said in a very interesting paper that I will put in the show notes, solving the climate crisis requires the end of capitalism. And you kind of head to that in the web of meaning. And so let's have a look at that because you describe it as the elephant in the room. And it seems to me, I do occasionally talk to economists and people who have quite left-wing views. And I have yet to find one of them who isn't trying to shoehorn a fix into the capitalist structure. And you say, but we don't, what, we have to get rid of capitalism. And they, they go very wide-eyed very quickly. But it seems true. And I'm so glad you said it. So shall we unpick 
the elephant in the room a little bit? Sure. I think that's the most important conversation we can be having right now. And just to maybe kick off the sort of frame this discussion about capitalism itself. Um, you know, when I was just describing my view of how COP26 ended, and, you know, you raised the, the concept of hope, <laughs> sort of, uh, I wish, I, I, was, I was looking for some hope. To me, this is the source of hope is actually recognizing what really needs to be changed. Because it's only once we really get to the bottom of what is going on that and actually start focusing attention on that, that then there is hope. Because I'm, I'm certainly not without hope. Um, I don't feel like we're, um, this path we're on is inevitable, but I do feel that it is inevitable until and unless we actually look at what is really driving this, this vehicle that's driving towards the precipice. We need to actually look at the actual road we're on and change that direction. And until we actually start looking at that, then we, we're going to keep heading in the wrong direction. And so that's really my, the sort of context for that. So to your point, it is an elephant in the room because it's like terrifying. For some people, for some reason, people feel like it's scary to actually mention that capitalism is the problem. I think partly because uh, ever since the uh, the last few decades with a um, back in the 20th century it was like capitalism versus communism and it seemed that if you were going to actually look and critique capitalism you were automatically must be a, a, a died in the wall socialist or communist then of course um, communism collapsed plus it was a disaster even while it was going and then people like Margaret Thatcher were able to say, you know, there is no alternative, the famous Tina um, statement. Um, and people believe that. So it's as though, well, if you critique capitalism, there must be, um, uh, then it's almost like existential. There can't be anything else. But that's not actually the case. But the first step has to recognize what is capitalism and what is it that we're critiquing? And I think ultimately, we need to recognize that capitalism, it's, it actually kind of tells us from its, the word itself, uh, the word capital, it's about the primacy of capital over other aspects of life and other aspects of human experience. And, it, and what it basically is about is saying that for those who have capital, it's not just okay, but it's fundamental to view the rest of the world, other people, and other non-humans, the rest of the living earth, as being uh, resources to exploit, to increase the amount of capital you have. That's the simple basis of it. And we've been really on this path for hundreds of years, basically, since the rise of the sort of limited liability corporation in the 17th century. And the point about capitalism is that it relies on growth. This exploitation of capital means that investors are always looking for the best place to put their capital so they can get the highest returns at the fastest rates. And so as soon as some, somebody comes up with some efficiency improvement or something that looks good, it, it ends up getting used just to grow even faster. So all the so things like saying, oh, we need to invest in renewables, which of course we do. And this is not meant to be a... Um, 
taking away from the value and importance of making those right steps. But if we do it within the context of global capitalism and we don't recognize that, then any, um, any increase in efficiency of how we use our resources only, use, only leads to those resources being used even more extensively and even more rapidly. So this is Jevon's paradox that you talk about. Can you let's talk a little bit about Jevon's paradox? Because I think this is one of these counterintuitive things that once you've got your head around it, it makes a lot of sense. So can you unpick for us what Jevon's paradox is, how it arose, and then how it applies in concrete terms now? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. And it sounds like a little bit of a geeky thing. What's this what's this paradox or whatever we're talking about? Basically, Jevons was uh, was an economist in the 19th century, and he came up with this famous paradox when he looked at, at the James Watt's invention of the steam engine, which we all know nowadays, oh, that was when the Industrial Revolution really got going. Turns out that the steam engine was invented because it was trying to make a, a more efficient way to pump the water out of the coal mines, and, was and it actually was trying to make it more efficient and use less coal to pump the same amount of water out. So it was designed to reduce the amount of coal that had to be used to uh, continue the mining. Well, of course, what happened was rather than reducing the amount of coal that had to be mined, it led to this massive increase in coal mining. And suddenly people were going, oh, this can be more efficient. We can build uh, this or that industry based on this increased efficiency. And the paradox is that it led to massive more coal mining rather than less. Um, and what is fascinating is that this paradox has been shown to be the case in virtually every aspect of economic development <clears throat> since that time. So, for example, to take a completely different um, situation, back in the 19th century in, in the American South, they used slaves, as we, as we know, this hideous history, um, to process the cotton. Uh, somebody came up with an invention of this thing called the cotton gin, which made the processing far more efficient. Oh, you, that should lead to a decrease in the use of slaves, right? The opposite. In fact, because it was more efficient, they could produce the cotton more cheaply, get it out to more places. It led to an increase in the use of slaves because of that greater efficiency. Every direction uh, we see this working because of the fundamentals of capitalism to always look to invest the, um, the pound or the dollar in what can get us the biggest increase in returns as quickly as possible. Right. Yes, thank you. And it, this is the thing, we have to be systemic and we have to go back to the roots of what's happening and not just try and tweak things at the bottom. And it seems to me that Jevon's paradox speaks explicitly to all the attempts to do minor tweaks at the bottom of whatever system we're on agriculture or transport or power, instead of going back to the root of the issue, which is capitalism and the push for GDP growth, regardless of how we get that. Because, you know, an, a good functioning community that doesn't need many inputs and doesn't create many outputs is very, very bad for GDP. Whereas a totally dysfunctional community with lots of drugs and gun running and prostitution and all the things that we generally consider is not very great for our, our community is fantastic for GDP. So if what we're going for is GDP growth, then we're inevitably creating a more destructive, more extractive, less whole society. 
Exactly, exactly, Amanda. And that's what's so bizarre is the measurement. You know, most politicians feel that they're going to get elected or not based on how well they can show they've grown the economy. Um, And to your point, what GDP basically measures is nothing to do with human well-being, but is to do with the rates at which capitalism is working, the rate at which we are exploiting um, the natural world, turning it into the financialized monetary economy. And the same with people, the rate at which we're turning regular natural human behavior into a financialized, monetized process. Uh, so to your point, if somebody grows vegetables in their garden and, and shares it with friends, it's a disaster for GDP. Whereas um, if, that, you know, if, they, if their garden is destroyed and they just go uh, to the store to buy the vegetables, then GDP is going up. And hopefully they won't cycle to the store. Hopefully they'll take the car to the store because that will also increase GDP. Keep the fossil fuel companies very happy. Yes. And yet, we know in the UK that David Cameron tried a period of about six months where he was saying GDP is not the thing, guys. We need to be looking. He even quoted, you know, Bhutan's gross national happiness. Right. But the Treasury didn't get it and the papers didn't get it. So we've got an inertia in the system. We'll come back to that. I want to stay with critiquing capitalism and where that's happening, because clearly it wasn't a COP. The absolute foundation of COP was that we would go for green capitalism or sustainable capitalism or any other adjective you want to put on the front that makes it sound greenwashed, but it's a form of capitalism. Because as you said, Margaret Thatcher said there is no alternative. And actually it seems the our experiences that people would rather contemplate, you know, eight degrees of global warming and then run away, total, utter chaos, and a world on which nothing currently living can possibly survive than contemplate deliberately ending capitalism. Yes, and there is that famous quote, um, which goes, it's easier for most people to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And that has unfortunately become true, and it's so unnecessarily true, because there are so many wonderful beautiful, brilliant ideas, coherent, thought out ideas as to what we can do in place of this capitalist system. So that's where I feel it's so um, it's so important by w- talking about the elephants in the room, that doesn't mean we have to then give up, but it means we can actually try to look at the right uh, potential solutions rather than focusing on the wrong solutions. Yes. And you know, the, the thing is, sometimes people say, oh, but we don't have time for that. We don't have time to change the whole system. And that there is a lot of truth around that. And one of the things that I really like to emphasize is that my point is that when we look at these deep systemic transformations we need, that's not to say that should be instead of all of these incremental improvements that so many really people with the right intentions, deeply caring people are working on. Absolutely. but. One that they need to be, we need to recognize they have to be within the context of this much larger system change. And two, by being aware of what's needed in the system change, it does change to some degree the choices we make in the increment, the choices we make in the short term as to where we put our energy. Because some things that look like improvements might actually keep leading us actually right there towards a precipice, whereas other equally uh, potentially good or bad solutions might lead us away from the precipice. That's why I feel it's really important to get a big 
long-term sense of what we're looking at, even while we're focusing on what's needed in the short term. Brilliant. I took part in Hawkwood's uh, Climate Action Lab last week, which was, as always, really interesting. And we had a speaker come and talk all about systemic change and how systemic change was absolutely essential. And I asked, what does the world look like when the systemic change has happened? And immediately we defaulted to, well, timing isn't linear. And anyway, it has to be emergent and you can't predict an emergent system from the preceding system, which is all true. Yes. However, it seems to me that you are beginning to try to predict, because as you've just said, if we don't give people a vision of what the emergent system could look like, it won't necessarily look like it, but it could look like it, then the decisions that we make in order to try to get there are going to lack a horizon to aim for. And then we're just spinning around within capitalism. And I know that Joanna Macy has three pillars and one of them is holding actions. And the others are systemic change and changing consciousness. But if all we're doing is tiny holding actions at the margins, then I think we're not in time. I think we definitely aren't in time. So without denying that small holding actions are useful, can we have a look at how systemic change might look like? If you were to design a world economy that we could get to from where we are, have you an idea of how it would look? Yes. I think there are some pretty clear senses of what, uh, what it actually would look like. And some of these changes are actually quite simple changes to make if the political will was there. We're not talking about things that are just imponderable that we can't even get our heads around. Um, and uh, just to give a bigger sense of this, there's this wonderful term that increasingly people are using to envisage this different kind of civilization that they call, they call it an ecological civilization, which I love because it gives the sense that it's not just, we're not just talking about a change in uh, our economic structure, for example, even big as that would be, but we're talking about a change in the foundations of our civilization. It starts from the very foundational point to this discussion we were having about capitalism uh, just a bit before, that right now our civilization itself is based on the core value of uh, wealth accumulation. It basically says that um, we should look at the rest of life, everything outside of ourselves, as resources. And it's built on exploitation and extraction and seeing um, every all of life as other, as, like, as a resource to be exploited. The notion is to explore what would it look like if we actually built a civilization on life-affirming principles, on actually the principles of setting the conditions for true flourishing, long-term sustainable flourishing, for basically for all humans on a regenerated earth. So not some zero-sum game, like humans can only uh, do well if we keep using earth as resources, but actually recognizing that there's this concept of fractal flourishing, that we're all parts of fractal layers, bigger and bigger parts. Each of us as humans are part of society, a part, parts of our nation states, parts of all humanity. We're all parts of the living earth. And the notion is that each part can only be truly healthy when each of the larger parts are also healthy. So it's not a zero-sum game, it's a positive-sum game. And that can apply in very specific there can be very specific ways in which that can actually um, show in the real world. One example, uh, let's say, for a, 
global economic system is to recognize that right now the transnational corporations have essentially taken over the control of our world. Uh, out of the 100 largest economies in the world today, 69 of them are in fact these for-profit transnational corporations that are designed on the, the DNA is like to only um, make as much profits for their shareholders as possible. And even if you have a really high-minded CEO who wants to do well, he can't do that because um, his he or his board will get sued in the courts if they actually make a decision not to make as much money as possible for shareholders because it's unethical or it's polluting or it's causing destruction. But that can so easily be changed. All that needs to be done. And we're, some people are probably familiar with this notion of the triple bottom line. And, and you see in, in B corporations and benefit corporations, which are corporate structures that have been um, stated to be not just looking for profits, but also people and planet. Basically, uh, looking for the well-being of all those who are their constituencies, like employees, customers, and all of the living earth that they are related to, to avoid pollution, et cetera. Now, right now, that mostly people kind of scoff at that because it's had virtually no impact because it's a voluntary choice. A few corporations might choose it um, and they might may try to do well, but even if they do try to work on that basis, if they are competing against other corporations that aren't trying to do that right, it's not a level playing field. So imagine a situation where for large these large corporations above a certain size, they were only allowed to have their charters renewed every few years if they made if they met these triple bottom lines. Their charters were actually restated, restructured for this triple bottom line. And if they didn't, if they didn't meet that, then they would basically lose their charter. And that's that's an example of a kind of change we'd be looking at. So who gives these charters? Because these are now transnational corporations. If, if let's say, the US says, OK, you know, Corporation X, we won't name them because they have big lawyers. We've decided that you, you're not meeting this. Then they go and set up in Antigua or Bolivia or wherever in the world that hasn't. This, you, you, we would end up with havens in the way that we have tax havens, only they would be charter havens going, okay, you can come and charter with us. It's no problem. We don't care what you're doing. How do we make this a global thing? That's right. I mean, that's a, a great question to ask. And it seems that these kind of issues seem at first like almost like we can't even begin to get our heads around them. But it's not actually quite as difficult as it seems like, because what's involved really is getting a critical mass. If uh, when you're talking about things like changing corporate charter legal structures or whatever, if you have just the countries of the, the kind of G8 type countries or even the G20, but um, just the United States and the European countries uh, and China, if they all just got together and agreed, we need to change this or that system, then the rest of the nations would end up um, following through. And it's relatively straightforward to actually put structures in place, just like we see in a, in a much smaller case right now, uh, starting with Biden in the last year, there's this notion of a minimum tax rate for corporations, no. which would be one of these things people say can't happen. But it's gotten so extreme that these corporations can get away 
like you say, to uh, to put all their profits in the countries that ask the either zero or tiny little tax rates. Um, they've actually managed to pay almost no tax. Mm. So now even the countries that were sort of holdouts are realizing they have no choice but to go along with this minimum tax rate idea. These things can be done. What's needed is the vision and the political will to actually make them happen. And that's where the hope comes from, is this realization that the vision can lead to those kind of changes. Brilliant. I would really like to hope that. I get nervous and paranoid about the fact that the very big companies, so let's let's say Facebook, for instance, is now a trillion dollar company. It would be, they would barely notice it. It, it would be coming out of the small change to buy every politician in the world. They genuinely could, and I don't think that the shareholders would even notice the money had gone because they now own so much wealth that they are just creating a kind of critical mass of of sucking money in because what do you do when you've got a trillion dollars? Wherever you put it is going to have a massively outweighed influence. And I can imagine a point where the government of the US says, okay, we're going to break up Facebook, and Facebook goes, no, you're not. And the government of the US finds that it doesn't actually have the power to do that. Have you thought down that, or am I just being particularly paranoid? And, and feel free to say that I am. I would be very happy to find that. I think that you're quite right to raise these questions about the kind of changes that are needed. And this leads to another um, shift, when we're thinking about really envisioning what an ecological civilization would look like, we really need to look at the changes in governance that would be required as part of that. That we can't, um, we're not going to see these changes as long as we have these, um, the, all the power existing in these nation states that are voted in what is really just this pretense of democracy among the ones that do claim to be democratic. Um, and it's a pretense of democracy because the media is owned by the same large uh, corporations and billionaires that own the rest of the system. Um, and they, by controlling the media and uh, controlling the funds that go into politics, even those politicians that consider themselves to be more ethical and don't consider themselves ready to be bought by one company or another are effectively part of that system anyway, because they will restrain what they can even consider thinking about or talking about based on what they think is doable. Um, and that's part of what needs to be shifted. We have to really look at changing our governance structures to one that an um, Extinction Rebellion, for example, is doing a great job of bringing this into the conversation, looking at citizens' assemblies, looking at ways of devolving power more towards communities um, where the actual impacts of decisions are actually felt the most, and trusting in uh, the actual intelligence of people. Like when we have a trial by jury and um, somebody is convicted of some crime and you get random 12 people uh, pulled together for a jury trial. And that's, it's called sortition. We, we, don't, we haven't chosen them because they're the experts in um, law or whatever. We've chosen them because they have common sense and they actually come with normal human values, which includes sense of caring, fair play, compassion, a sense of justice. And when that happens, even though it's imperfect, there are usually there's a, some sense of, of trust that the decisions get made um, in, a, in a fair kind of way. Similarly, if we have 
devolving power to citizens' assemblies where um, regular people are actually brought in to start to engage in political um, change, you, ca- you end up getting much better decisions that are not purchased by the big corporations. We do. But I would like to suggest that we end up in a loop where, you're right, the politicians are enthralled to, in the old style, the legacy media, the, the newspapers and the television and the radio who are owned by the billionaires. So so we have a system where, where they very carefully prop each other up. We now have social media, and I'm increasingly interested in sense-making on social media. I was listening to Daniel Schmachtenberger and Tristan Harris on Frank Lunt's podcast the other day, and they were talking about sense-making. And Tristan was saying he had just been speaking to somebody who was showing him the AI where you could say to it, write me a novel in the voice of James Joyce about... COVID vaccine. And it would write you a full novel in a very short time. And you didn't have to type anything, you just had to speak to it. And you could similarly say, write me a paper proving why the COVID vaccine is is completely worthless um, and giving all of the facts and citing everything that people are putting around the internet. And it would produce a document that would take many very expert people a very long time to decide whether it was actually true or not. And so we've reached a point I think a kind of another tipping point that isn't a climate tipping point, but that is related, where already, and definitely within the next six months, definitely in the next electoral cycle in the US and the UK, people are going to be reading stuff on the net that has no human basis whatsoever, but they will be unable to tell whether it does have a human basis, whether it's real. And so it seems to me that in the process of creating our eco-civilization, we somehow have to solve the sense-making crisis so that we can actually trust. Otherwise, our citizens' assembly comes in and however good our sortition, if these people have been on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or Snapchat or Instagram, their worldview and at quite a deep level, their neuroceptive capacity has been shifted. Have you? I'm thinking you must have thought about that because it's so huge at the moment and you seem to have thought about everything else. Have you ideas of how we fix this? I think that the only way we can turn towards this kind of more life-affirming civilization really has to start within each of us in our hearts. Hmm. Because what I think we need to recognize, and I'm terrified as much by each of these things as as I sense you are and everyone should be. And by, I'm by no means discounting the power of everything that you've been raising here in this discussion, the power of the corporations to just buy up politicians, the, um, the power of AI to subvert people's minds. And again, coming from here from the United States, uh, I'm afraid uh, we see it just only too clearly how um, a big minority uh, of the population is just enthralled to these made-up, very, very poisonous lies. And, and, and they're being manipulated by these very cynical minds who are putting this out there. Um, and I do find this, te- this terrifying. And I'm by no means uh, trying to say that I have the solution to respond to some of these things. I'm not sure if any of us actually has the solution. But I do believe that that's the 
ultimately the solution itself has to come from the fact that there is another powerful force going on in the world right now, different from the ones we've been looking at. And it's the force of people connecting from their humanity. And this is what is what I find so fascinating, that this dominant worldview that is so destructive, that is leading us to this path right now, only gets to maintain itself by conditioning every single human being who is born at a relatively young age to actually move away from their core human values. The thing that is so wonderful is that as human beings, we are born as beautiful, loving, connected creatures. Uh, we are born with a desire to feel warmth and care. We are born with a natural, empathic, compassionate relation to those around us. Uh, we're born to love the natural world and to see all living creatures as being our relatives. That's how indigenous cultures understood the world for millennia. And they didn't. that didn't just happen out of nowhere. That happened because humans evolved in that way to develop this group identity. That's what makes us unique as humans. That's the power that we have. That basically there right now are 8 billion um, loving, beating hearts in among human beings, which only get to turn their, those, person, those persons into negative pathways through the conditioning of a pathological society and culture telling them that they need to act in different ways. Most people who are acting in those destructive ways don't feel good about that. They don't feel good about themselves. They feel bad about their life. They feel a great degree of suffering. And they've learned only to um, paper that over by acting in ways to um, basically reject or refuse to acknowledge what those feelings are. What I think any positive turn towards a flourishing future has to do is reach into those loving hearts of people and get them to connect with the shared humanity of those around them, not see the person on the other political um, side as being the other, as being this bad person, as being the evil, destructive person, but actually seeing them as being good people who want to do good and who have been manipulated by other forces um, to be agents for something that's not so good. And by approaching it in that way, that doesn't mean compromising or trying to come up with these false optimistic views. It means really calling it for what it is, but also recognizing the 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 and the result of that is not to shame other people, not to make them feel bad about themselves, not to uh, make them feel like the enemy, but to actually look at what can invite them into a sense of what is a positive future. And if they do respond in ways that feel antagonistic and negative, to look inside ourselves to keep connecting with our own love for humanity, our own love for the future, and not let ourselves get riled up and uh, give the other side exactly what they want by uh, getting all by getting angry and resentful back. Brilliant. That's reminding me so much of Alnur Lada and his concept of the wetiko as being that right. destructive extractive force that I'm sure has been around easily since the Romans, probably before that, um, and, and is part of our conditioning. But what gives me hope exactly what you say is that we're each born afresh with the possibility of connecting, however much our culture may have conditioned everything around us to that disconnection. 
back in the web of meaning, you you spoke about the four R's of indigeneity, which seemed to me beautiful. It's one of those things I wanted to to put on the wall. Can you talk a little bit about those? Because they speak exactly to what you've just been saying. It's this beautiful concept that got um, really developed in some detail by the indigenous scholar, LaDonna Harris, who was looking um, she's a, a North American scholar, and she was looking to what to understand what are the shared values that indigenous peoples around the world actually do have, which they've had for many millennia, but they also have in totally different parts of the world, from Australia uh, to North America to South America, um, everywhere, basically. And she identified what she called the four R's of relationship, responsibility, reciprocity and redistribution, which are kind of interesting concepts. And But it starts basically with this notion of relationship, this recognition that um, a core human identity, rather than being this um, based on this kind of libertarian individualism, saying like, my true identity is as a, as a separate individual, that your fullness as a human being comes from your acknowledgement and embrace of your relationship with all others around you and with the living earth. And that's the, like almost like the fundamental part of it. And with that recognition of relationship comes the sense of responsibility. That um, that relationship doesn't mean that, oh, my relationship is to exploit, but my relationship is to be responsible for the flourishing of those around me as much as for myself, which leads then to this uh, beautiful notion of reciprocity. So it's, and that means that, See, when an indigenous uh, group will go into the natural world and uh, look to harvest uh, what they need for their own um, for their own self, it, it doesn't mean not taking what they need, but it means as they take what they need, asking their relatives, like all the living earth around them, what they need back. So it might mean taking an, uh, taking enough, but leaving enough for other animals, or it might mean leaving enough so that the different uh, plants can grow back healthily. And that can lead to this beautiful symbiotic relationship to get back to this notion we were talking before, where the flourishing of humanity on the earth doesn't need to be at the expense of the rest of the earth, but actually can lead to a symbiotic flourishing. And then the, the final concept there is redistribution, which is so interesting. And it's not uh, of course, in our global system right now, redistribution has a very obvious economic meaning that when these mega billionaires, um, their wealth needs to be redistributed fundamentally. I mean, we live in this crazy, psychotic, um, loathsome world where basically um, just a, a couple of dozen people own as much wealth as half of the human race, 4 billion people. And those 4 billion people, for the most part, aren't even earning enough to en enable them to really rely on the nutrition for a full, healthy life. That's the, the that's kind of redistribution that is staring us in the face. But redistribution in this um, notion of indigeneity also refers to the sense of redistributing your um, your skills and abilities. So if I happen to be particularly 
good at a particular thing in my community, then using that to help others. So it's a, it's like redistribution, not just of wealth assets, but assets that each of us have to really be able to contribute fully to the community. Those are the things that can lead uh, in really to that notion of an ecological civilization. Mm. I think an ecological civilization self would be based on um, values like those four R's. Brilliant. Beautiful. Thank you. Yes. So that leads me to another podcast I was looking, listening to the other day, the Upstream podcast, and they had Tyson Junkaporta. I'm probably mincing his name. Yes. He's uh, Indigenous Aboriginal Australian. He wrote the book Sand Talk. And he described a wonderful ritual that they had. With, with two young men were wanting to fight. The elders would get them together and they would let them fight with knives, but they had very specific rules. And the rules were, you know, basically, if you break the rules, the elders will spear you. So it's you've got tremendous incentive to not break the rules. But the rule was you couldn't cut anyone basically anywhere on the front at all. You could only cut them on their back. And he said he tried this with, with you know, disaffected young men, just giving them marker pens. And it's really hard to get your marker pen on someone else's back. But at the end, they would turn the two young men around and they would count the marks on their back and the one with the least marks won. But then the elders would mark the one with the least marks, with exactly the same marks as the other guy had, so that they would remember that what I do to you, I do to me. Mm. Which the reciprocity of that seemed wonderful. But he was saying, and I found it very interesting. He's he's another critique of capitalist. He's he's got the same kinds of ideas as we have, and he said that as far as he was concerned, as part of the redistribution, we needed to have no ownership of land. And that he talked to all of his friends, he's obviously, he's in Australia, all of the other people in the hierarchies of the economics departments at the universities, who'd said, there would be so much bloodshed if you tried to do that, that it is impossible. And I wonder, listening to you, relationship, responsibility, reciprocity, redistribution, particularly redistribution from the, from the super wealthy who cannot possibly ever need that much money, do you have an idea of how we get there that isn't a bloody revolution mm. because we, we have, first of all, we haven't got time. And second, none of us wants that. That's right. Um, I completely agree with you. And um, basically, personally, I disavow any approach that actually wants to use violence as part of the transformation we need. Um, I mean, partly just for ethical reasons and partly because we need to recognize that um, there's this old sort of communist adage or whatever that uh, the end justifies the means. Um, and that is not just wrong, but is actually wrong in principle, in, in sort of qualitatively wrong, because actually there is no such thing as the end. There's only this ongoing means. We're never like at the end point. Things are always moving on to the next thing. So whatever means we use to enable that transformation if it's successful, that'll be the means that is considered the fundamental of wherever we go. Right. So if we look at, the tra at this transformation from a point of view of true love, meaning simply a, the realization and embrace of our connectedness with all those around us, and that becomes the basis of whatever we do, that is what can lead to a positive outcome. So anyway, I just wanted to make that really clear. And to your point, yes, there are very specific things. I mean, one is... In terms of the, these mega billionaires, is a simple cap 
on the amount of wealth that somebody can have. This doesn't mean um, getting rid of all um, private ownership of wealth or anything like that, but a simple number, I mean, just out of the top of, uh, just taking the top of my head, just a number like a billion dollars or whatever it might be, saying that's a cap. I was thinking of 10 million. <laughs> whatever, it could be a lot lower than exactly, it could be 10 million. But, um, and of course, there can be a big discussion about that. But the point is that above that amount, um, those assets, they could even be put in a certain trust where um, these people with these gigantic egos who are so proud of what they've done, they can even um, have some minus say, not a majority say, but some minus say in how those um, extra assets are allocated so that they don't have to feel. So, I mean, because there's a certain quality of people wanting to feel that they can achieve a lot and uh, and do good. But there's no reason why that can't be done in the interests of all humanity and all life rather than for, purely for somebody's own ego. So that's just one concept. It's sort of a cap on um, extreme extravagant wealth. But I think um, even more than that, there's this wonderful notion of not so much getting rid of uh, all, all kind of land ownership itself or private property itself, but a simple recognition of shifting the foundation of law. That right now, are basically the fundamentals of our law in the West, in our dominant culture, is that um, property owning something gives you rights. And then all the rest of the law is about protecting those rights. And then you can enter into a contract with somebody and then you have some relationship of rights and responsibilities as part of that contract. But the fundamental shift in law would simply be that ownership gives you both rights and responsibility. Just going back to that, those values of indigeneity. And so what that means is that if you own a piece of land, you don't actually have a right to just um, bring in people to mine the land and mine and create massive pollution around you and destroy things. You don't have a right to own, say, real estate in cities and just let it go empty or just uh, charge such outrageous rents that nobody else, that people can't afford to live. There are, it's a basically looking at a fundamentally different way of understanding law could lead to different outcomes, which still gives um, some of the things that people value in our modern society, the ability to um, get rewards if you are if you do work hard and you have great ideas and you do things right. And there's nothing wrong with people being able to do that and feel that they get a reward for that. There is something fundamentally wrong with those rewards leading to the exploitation and devastation of others in the society unnecessarily. So those are the kinds of shifts, once again, that we see that don't require um, some massive um, uh, sort of rethinking of things that can never happen over um, decades or centuries or whatever, mm -hmm. but simple changes in the underlying foundation that lead naturally to different outcomes. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So this is giving me great hope, I have to say. I'm immensely grateful because I was totally depressed after the end of COP and, and just watching the shenanigans around the world, really. And I love that concept of the four R's. And if we take that as a kind of metaphor for everything that you've been saying, that what we need is a fundamental change in the shift of our own human values. 
And from that, we would get a shift in our political situation, a shift in our economic situation, a shift in our legal situation. And all of those would rest the wheel of the bus away from that drive to the cliff and turn it into an emergent system that we don't know what it looks like, but it would be predicated on relationship responsibility, reciprocity and redistribution. Have you got a way of creating that mindset at scale, at the scale and speed that we need before the bus goes over the cliff? Yes, I think that it comes back to what we were saying before, that that mindset is available to all of us already, because it's not so much, the, the only one place I would change some of the wording of what you were just saying is it's not so much a change in our core human values, but a return to our core human values. And that's what is our secret weapon of this transformation is that as humans, as we were saying before, we evolved in deep within our core being, a deeply felt sense of things like fairness, um, love of people we see around us who, who are generous. Um, we want to be part of a greater community. We have a group identity. These are things that are actually within each of us. So I feel that the, the changes are not going to necessarily come from some sort of big picture um, grand vision that people just have to get behind and follow on. I do think there is something of value to recognize that we are all moving, those of us who do care about life, moving together towards this possibility of an ecological civilization. But ultimately, the drive and the scalability of it comes from within each of our hearts. And where I get hope is I feel this is happening already. And a great analogy for the change that actually is taking place is a little bit like if you walk in a forest uh, today, right now, and, and you, you see the trees around you, um, what you don't know is actually going on is ben below the earth, all of those tree roots are connecting with each other through the fungal network that's out there called the mycorrhizal network. And as biologist Suzanne Samad has, um, has shown, like this just amazing way of recognizing this deep intelligence in all of life. Trees are actually not just communicating with each other, but they also, they have like a wood wide web where they're kind of transmitting um, resources to each other, depending on where the need is. So there's this like mutual aid society, basically, that's all happening underground. You don't see it when you're walking along. You just see the trees above you and, and that's it. Similarly, when we turn on our media, or look at the news, we only see what's right there that um, journalists feel is newsworthy or sells um, advertising, so they'll tell us what's going on. And, and of course, there's things that are scandalous and get our adrenaline all up and all that stuff. What we don't see are those deep connections. We don't see people feeling quietly, this is screwed up, and talking to their neighbors about it. We don't see people turning away from some um, crappy job because they realize they don't want to be part of that treadmill and turning towards um, something that's more to do with community aid and, and sharing with others. What we don't see is people shifting their own um, values and recognizing that we're headed to destruction and knowing that we need to be doing things in different ways. And that's the kind of thing that is happening right now. And none of us alone are going to be the one 
to actually uh, make it all happen. Somebody like a uh, Greta Thunberg will, um, other people will like that. They they will appear um, at the when they're least expected. But even for the wonderful work that uh, Greta is doing, um, she is just touching into what people are already feeling. And that is that is the work that we're all doing. So we need to recognize that basically we're all part of this deep interconnected um, network, like that mycorrhizal fungal network. This kind of you know what I call in my book the web of meaning, um, and not, and each of us have an impact that's nonlinear. We don't know every conversation we have, every action we take, how that's rippling out to others around us. When somebody chooses to I'm say, yeah, I'm going to stop eating meat, I'm going to try being vegetarian or vegan for a while, or I'm not going to take that flight, I'm going to do this differently, that may be having impacts that we don't even realize of people just taking that in and saying, oh, maybe I should be thinking about doing this in a different way or whatever. That's not to mean that those small incremental shifts in our behavior are sufficient. We all need to get engaged in actively uh, trying to change these bigger political processes and systems. But the point is that all the actions we do need to come from that sense of connectedness, that sense that we're part of something bigger, that sense of a shared humanity, that we're not trying to beat some enemy. Um, we're simply trying to work together to establish a more positive uh, future flourishing potential for humanity on this earth. And if our actions come from that place, then there's no guarantee. I have no idea where we're going to go. I have no idea if we are going to head off out of that precipice and head to this disaster. But what I do know is every one of the actions I take each day and every one of the actions each of us takes that day, we have the choice to try to use the energy we have to move this interconnected nonlinear web into another direction. That is brilliant. I, I have so many extra questions, but we are out of time. And you will be coming on to the Throughtopia Masterclass later next year. So maybe we'll have a chance to ask some of them then. In the meantime, that was really comprehensive and really gave me some hope back again. Thank you, Jeremy. That's just brilliant because I, I needed that. Thank you. Mm, thank you, Amanda. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. And that's it for another week. Enormous thanks to Jeremy for giving me post-COP hope, and I hope you, and for living what he believes. It shines through every word that he says that Jeremy has done the work. He knows who he is. He knows his place in the world. He knows the reciprocities and relationships and responsibilities that live in the web of his meaning. His book is really worth a read. I will put a link in the show notes, and if you're looking for something to be a Christmas present for you from somebody else, or if you're looking to give a book to somebody, this one has to be very near the top of your list. So that apart, we will be back next week with another conversation. And in the meantime, huge thanks to Caro C for the music at the Head and Foot and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for the website and the tech, and enormous thanks to you for listening. If you know of anybody else who wants to be part of the greater web of meaning, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.